This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Grasping at Straws edition. It's Wednesday, July 18th, 2018. On today's show, Leave No Trace is the new indie feature from director Deborah Granick, she of Winter's Bone fame. And then Sasha Baron Cohen is back with a new show, Who is America, on Showtime. And finally, banning plastic straws. Is this a crucial first step in saving the earth, or is the camel's back already broken? Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. Good straw joke. Good straw joke. (laughs) (laughs) Of the first of many more to come. He's got a whole dispenser Uh, of them. Oh. (laughs) Jeez. Oh, my God. I hope there are no first-time listeners out there right now. Not anymore. (laughs) And, of course, Dana Stevens, Slate's film critic. Hey, Dana. Hello, Steven. By the way, I'm no longer Bativen Betcalf. Um, Twitter has informed me what that uh, nickname really means. Um, moving forward, Deborah Granick is best known for her 2010 feature film, Winter's Bone, itself best known, perhaps fairly, unfairly, who knows, for launching the career of Jennifer Lawrence, who's gone on to very big things. Uh, but Winter's Bone was a remarkable movie in its own right. And now Granick is back many years later with Leave No Trace. Tells the story of a veteran of one of our endless wars who is suffering from PTSD and living off-grid and almost completely apart from modern society with his daughter, who he's raising in a giant and lush but also very public park near Portland, Oregon. In their secret campsite, they live an almost completely self-sufficient and covert life. With a twist, or what I experienced in the movie is something of a twist, that he's a good father, possibly a great father, in many ways, possibly even an ideal one, and she's a loving daughter, and their life together is soulful, meaningful, loving, supportive. But I think it's fair to say from the opening frame of the movie, we know it cannot last. On what terms it will end comprises the substance of this beautiful film. Uh, I should add, it's t- remarkable performances from its two leads, Ben Foster as the dad and Thomas and McKenzie as Tom, his daughter. Let's listen to a clip. Sorry for making you worry about me. If we had a phone, I could have called you. Always been able to communicate without all that. I think it might be easier on us if we try to attack. We're wearing their clothes, we're in their house, we're... We're eating their food, we're doing their work. We have adapted. The only place we can't be seen is in this house. We can still think our own thoughts. Like you said. What if the kids at school think I'm strange? Because of the way we're living? How important are their judgments? Guess I'll find out. All right, well, um, Dana, let me start with you. Uh, In addition to launching... Jennifer Lawrence, Winter's Bone, launched Granick as a super, super promising director. It's been eight years uh, uh, in between features, though she did make a documentary. Uh, what do you make of her return? Oh, I'm happy to see her back on screen. And uh, I think this is my favorite of her movies yet. I haven't seen Stray Dog, the documentary that she made in between Winter's Bone and this, which I really want to see now because it's about a vet. It's also about a war veteran, and it's following him around, um, I think, investigating some of his therapy and the effect of his PTSD on his family and ideas that I'm sure must have influenced her desire to make this movie, which is actually an adaptation of another true story, an adaptation of a book about about a girl and her father sort of living this way off the grid and on public land. 
But I thought this movie mm. was fantastic, absolutely fantastic. It blew me away. That scene that we heard, I think, is illustrative of the emotional texture of the movie, but it's also probably one of the talkiest scenes in the film, right? I mean, there's a huge, huge number of scenes that have either no dialogue or maybe the father and the daughter each say one thing. And they these two actors managed to established so beautifully the um we don't even know how many years they've been doing this right but you get the sense that this mm. is essentially the girl's whole life at least all of the life she can remember she says at one point i wish i could remember my mother we never hear what happened to the mother but um but that kind of wild child uh, existence is established so economically through just dialogue and gesture that i was just i was really really impressed by this movie's restraint Mm. Julia, an extremely matter-of-fact verite style of uh, filmmaking, storytelling. What you, would you make of it? I loved this movie. I loved this movie. I hope that this movie uh, gets seen and revered for all of its excellences. One of the things I loved about it is just how... It, it's just surprising to see camping on screen. It just makes you realize, like film returns again and again to the same sites and the same pastimes and it ignores certain other ones like how many movies have you seen in a casino how many times have you been in a casino on a movie screen a gajillion times right like when are you not in a casino in a movie or in a pool hall or a train station or you know there's just so many places where movie cameras take us and this movie brought me back to when I was a gangly teen with frizzy hair and no makeup uh, and a green rainproof jacket in the woods, like setting up tarp lines and tying knots and figuring out whether to light a fire or use the propane stove and the textures and detail and just revelatory feeling of seeing this whole world in practice that's not part of our media language typically I found exciting and beautiful and wonderful. Um, there's a particular particular plate on which they cut some mushrooms that's just gritty and dinged up in the exact perfect nature mm. of your camping plate. Like, And then I just agree with Dana. The movie is masterful in the economy with which it establishes its themes uh, and tries to understand what it means to be part of a community, how one builds a community, um, and how, I mean, it's fundamentally a coming-of-age movie, right? How does one move from the community of one's family, however constructed, to the community of society? But it tells that story with such specificity uh, that I was blown away. And this is going to be the most conflict-free uh, Gab Fest segment in 10 years. I absolutely loved the movie for all the reasons you guys articulated. I mean, to me, this was going to hit two sweet spots with me right away. First of all, I'm the father of daughters. And second of all, I I love the, not detached is the wrong word, but I love the completely uh, non-didactic um, verite style of her filmmaking. Um, I, 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 that he's a loving father, that this is not an abuse or an escape narrative, but it fits into no obvious genre, um, really makes it about what it's about. And I think from the opening of the movie, you know that there are two kind of unthinkable things at work here. Like it's unthinkable that she would stay with him forever. And it's unthinkable, at least at the opening of the movie, that she would ever separate from him. And it's the just sort of absolute poignancy of that having to play itself out over the course of the film that makes it powerful so that it's not at all a didactic film about the nature of consumer culture or you know the needlessness you know um uh and heedlessness of american society Th though you know though there is an aspect of the film that is about that because it does have a loving attitude towards their self-sufficiency um and it does seem as though when they're plucked from it that a horrible loss is being visited upon them. But Julia, I think you're onto something in that it it then doesn't say that community is impossible within the supposedly fallen world and that some compromise with society is necessary in order for us to become fully human, just as 
apparent through the developmental parts of our lives representing the totality of the world is also critical to us becoming human. And then it's finding where and how to breach that, um, which is just a universal fact of every individual's life that takes what's so specific about this movie and makes it a film for, I think, just absolutely anybody. I mean, anyway, it's a great film and I'm trying to find the proper words to no, describe it. No, but it's such a great film. It's worth trying to find the proper words to discuss it. I mean, at the risk of elevating expectations for any of our listeners who haven't seen it yet. But yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting. The movie definitely is not ambivalent about the fact that the world is fallen. There are a number of shots throughout it that I think I would have found heavy handed in a more didactic movie. Uh, pictures of chemical plants and truck stops and highway overpasses and uh, the sad consumerism of a Christmas tree farm, you know, scenes that are sort of beautiful and to me recalled the uh, interesting industrial photography of Edward Bertinsky, but which, you know, could have been kind of gong banging in the hands of a different director, but here seem clinical and removed and merely like an observation that the world uh, isn't what it was and is a constrictive and um, hard world that we have built and chosen. Uh, Literally just the surfaces are hard. Um, But, you know, one of the things that, that happens because of this sense that the world is fallen through a set of choices that humans have made, probably individual reasonable choices that humans have made, is that that is juxtaposed with a total and pretty surprising absence of human villainy, Every person they encounter in society basically tries hard to help them, some in ways more useful than others. Maybe there's one character whose attempts at help uh, end up not being exactly what might be most useful and are slightly self-serving as well. But even that character is not presented as evil or terrible or um, an agent representative of the human impulse toward doom. The movie Mm. sort of notes, but then is neutral about the fact of a fallen world and the absence of villains leaves our main characters room to find each other and explore things. And it actually reminded me of um, Call Me By Your Name in a funny way in that there wasn't like three bad guys who were really homophobic and who were looming over the movie creating a sense of danger for this young gay love story um and that absence of a human agent of villainy strikes me as interesting and not something mm-hmm. you see that often yeah to the degree right. there's an antagonist it's like the antagonist is within ben foster and his performance does an incredible incredible job of yeah, communicating so that good. when he's in the houses like the, the scene that we heard right there in one of these houses that's been basically offered to them by social service outreach and he communicates so wordlessly and beautifully his just it's like the discomfort of a wild animal in a cage, just how unhappy he is in that scenario. And there doesn't need to be a lot of Sturm and Drang or music telling us that or close-ups mm-hmm. or anything. Right. It's all in his body action. He is amazing. Yeah, he's terrific. They're both amazing. I would add that, that you know, an important fact of this movie is that he hasn't withdrawn from the world because it's filled with oil refineries and, um, you know, uh, plastic straws. He's withdrawn from it because the country has massively broken its social contract with its veterans and after breaking their minds and spirits in inconclusive wars abroad does very little for them once they're back here you know the movie's as subtle about this as it is about everything else so i i'm i'm hesitant to say that it's definite about this but you know that he is suffering from the effects of his time overseas. And so I think that's why when they reemerge into the world, it seems harsh to us because it seems impossibly harsh um, to them, which is also an important part of the movie because the movie's really about the role human sociability plays within a healthy life. Um, And so I think we're supposed to see the Edenic existence they have in this public park at the beginning of the movie as impossible right like impossibly tenuous and fragile and something that absolutely cannot last in the same way that treating a parent as the totality of your world can't last and and that's why i think it becomes a deep and thoughtful movie and not a didactic or preachy movie like never a didactic or preachy movie 
People should see this movie. <laughs> yeah, we have nothing bad to say. What's wrong with us? I know, and I just hope that people go in understanding a movie as subtle, subtle as this, and as fragile and as beautifully as 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 beautiful in its fragility as this film is. It it can sometimes harm it to load it up with encomia. So just go see yeah. it. Yeah, I feel a little bit like we just dumped a bunch of gold ingots on a spider web, but. Pretend <laughs> pretend you're going on a walk in the woods. There's actually a beautiful key shot of a spider web at an important moment. There are several, yeah. I think. There's there's yeah. an opening and a closer. But forget our gold ingots. Pretend you're going on a beautiful walk in the woods. Go buy a ticket and see it in the theater, I think. It'll, it rewards the, the quietude of the big screen. Right. So essentially Pache like- the Angelica and it's rattling subway cars. <laughs> Our adjectives are large, horrible, clunky, ostentatious, vulgar objects that we just dumped on this gossamer filament of a film. Now you have to excavate it out from underneath those adjectives, dear listener. (laughs) So our camping left a trace is the problem. We left like a big pile of adjectives behind it. (laughs) We left a smoking hole. Wait, let's, let's pack our adjectives out. We'll just pull them back one by one. You'll never know we were here. That, well, that's the goddamn truth. All right, the movies leave no trace. It is getting, it's not, I wouldn't call it a wide release, but it's not, um, it's not nowhere. So go find it and see it. Go see it in a theater too. Uh, I think it, a big screen only enhances its effects. All right, moving on. All right, before we go any further, Julia Turner, I am going to um, guess that we have some business. We do indeed. Uh, first up, I want to announce that as a part of Future Tense's ongoing My Favorite Movie series, I, Julia Turner, will be hosting a screening of Network on Wednesday, July 25th in Washington, D.C. Steve, you'll appreciate this. I was asked to pick a movie about technology for this series that Future Tense, which is our um, kind of tech policy vertical on Slate, uh, and and sneakers had already been taken. (laughs) You can imagine my dismay. (laughs) What on earth? Um, But then I realized that what is Network if not actually a movie about technology in a certain way? So I'm very excited to watch Network uh, on a big screen with a bunch of folks in D.C. Perhaps you will be among them. The event will be 6.30 p.m. on Wednesday, July 25th at Washington, D.C.'s Landmark Theater's E Street Cinema at 555 11th Street Northwest. The event is free and open to the public a free opportunity to see network on the big screen come on down you can rsvp for yourself and up to one guest and there will also be a discussion with me after the film to sign up go to slate.com slash live and slate plus today we're going to take up the question of a very smart listener who wrote in to say but isn't steve totally wrong to insist on reading the book before seeing the movie at all times what hard-headed idiocy. And Dana and I love to take up the question of whether Steve is being a hard-headed <laughs> idiot, so we shall do so in Slate Plus. And we'll also, of course, afford Steve a chance to defend himself and his position. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program and is a great way to support the journalism we do. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. Okay, onward. Who is America returns Sasha Baron Cohen, the British comedian, to premium TV here in America, in this case, Showtime. Uh, of course, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen became famous in this country for the Ali G show. At the time, a pitch-perfectly weird bit of business built on Cohen disguising himself as an alter ego of one kind or another and interviewing the powers that be, revealing them to be the cruel hypocrites we suspected they were all along. In the new one, he punks such hateful luminaries as uh, former Senator Trent Lott, Dana Rohrabacher, uh, Joe Walsh, uh, fill in the blank. Why don't we listen to a clip? What do the liberals say is the reason for this and this solution. Well, they blame it on guns. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy because They people... blame it on the guns? Yes. Sugar. Yes. It's sugar. It is. We start a program in Israel for kindergartens. Okay. We train them from the age 16 down to the age three. Yeah, well, I, I think it would be a, a good idea. We, we've been pushing something along this line for years, but really haven't gotten any traction with it. We were thinking seventh or eighth grade. You're talking much younger than that. My son was in the very first program 
May he rest in peace. Uh, he died doing what I love. Okay, Julia, let me start with you. Uh, it's pretty universally acclaimed when Sasha Baron Cohen, you know, really became prominent over here with Ali G. People loved it. It seemed timely. It was very funny. It was unexpected. It was weird. Uh, how has it survived um, the transition to the Trump era? Oof. I, I, I mean, we're a little bit at a loss here because we've seen the first episode and not the subsequent ones. There was a very tight embargo on the show. And so some sense of what happens in ensuing episodes we have to take from which newsmakers have been uh, upset about having been duped by Sasha Baron Cohen in the course of the um, recording of the show. But I found myself numb I found myself unimpressed by the parts of this episode that are, I think we can all agree, obviously unimpressive, which I would count as the first three segments, which play to me like warmed over Jon Stewart era daily show, like find some not so media savvy dupe and dupe them and con them into being polite and or idiotic. Uh, And then the final segment that we just heard a clip from is this jaw dropping tour de force where Sasha Baron Cohen shows all of the things he's comedically capable of, which is whatever set of logistics are required to convince a bunch of real actual people with power in this country to sit down for an interview with a bogus crackpot and then agree to completely insane things. In this case, the idea of arming toddlers, which I think they get four or five uh, elected office holders or former elected office holders to record statements in favor of. And uh, that's Sasha Baron Cohen at his finest. And yet, watching this in the same week as the Helsinki summit, I just felt despair at our total inability to be shocked by anything anymore. Like, of Mm. course, of course, of course they did that. They will have no, there will be no consequences to these lawmakers for supporting the kindergartens program. It seems at this point plausible that there will be a kindergartens program like enacted because of the show, like our inability to absorb any more astonishment is depressing. And so I found the show depressing. Does that mean that it's rhetorically effective or um, a waste of effort? I don't know. Help. Tell me. Mm. Dana, what do you think? I mean, Utterly agree with Julia that the only part that's worthwhile is the last part of the show. How long was this show? It's half an hour, right? It feels longer than half an hour because, Julia, you're right, at least two-thirds of it should have gone by the wayside. And these other earlier pranking segments, which are not with politicians, and in which he plays different characters, not the, the Israeli gun nut that he plays with the politicians, those could be summarized in exactly the way Julia does summarize them as finding someone dupable and then duping them with this, with with a lot of improvisational expertise. I mean, you have to be impressed at Sasha Baron Cohen's gift at it's not exactly mimicry. It's just bald faced uh, impersonation, just his ability to sort of improvise in character with whatever comes at him. He's pretty astonishing at it. But what's the point of doing that, right? When you when you are just punking some perfectly decent person, and the most painful part of the show to watch is this segment where he visits this gallerist, this woman who runs a gallery, and he plays a an ex con who makes art out of his own feces and semen. So it's kind of this like bro gross out humor, which. It's just kind of jackass humor, but it's really at the woman's expense. And the Mm -hmm. woman, while she seems a little bit dim, is completely empathetic and nice and welcoming and sort of trying to to deal with this supposed crazy ex-con who's who's really kind of putting one over on her. Anyway, that really did leave a bad taste and is is a gross, gross segment. The the erraticness of the target acquisition in the first half of the show i actually mm-hmm. think is part of what undermines the power of oh, the yeah. of the sucker punch of the of the final segment of this first episode but so this actually came up with the person i was watching this with my partner who really didn't like the show and was especially turned off by that gallery segment but found the whole thing sort of i felt almost like i was a bad person for laughing while watching it because i could tell how kind of horrified he was by the whole endeavor but I have to say that except for during that gallery segment and especially in the last part where he's the Mossad agent convincing politicians to you know, support this weird kindergartens program, I laughed a lot. And I think it was a kind of cathartic laughter that I would argue is 
kind of necessary and not purely repetitive of the moment that we're in. Something I was thinking a lot was this new form of activism that's essentially following politicians around and shaming them and yelling at them in restaurants, et cetera, right, which is actually proven to be pretty effective, at least rhetorically. I think part of the reason that has really caught on and that people have really identified with it is that we feel so powerless, right? It's We're not represented. We don't seem to be a majority, you know, one person, one vote nation anymore, if we ever were. And there's just this desire to get up in somebody's face and shame them and then to even just vicariously do that through this this impersonation mm-hmm. to me was yeah. cathartic. And and even though I, I can see I felt like my response was supposed to be somehow as a good consumer of comedy to say something like Sasha Baron Cohen's moment is over and, you know, reality has outstripped him and this doesn't serve us anymore. But say what you will about it. I was laughing during that last half and uh, and feeling horror and maybe mm-hmm. not not learning anything new that I didn't already know about these people, but having that vicarious pleasure of, wow, I wish I could, you know, put on a crazy costume and get in a room and just make these people embarrass themselves. I almost, I admire Sasha Baron Cohen in a way because there's no one else doing this strange Andy Kaufman prankster comedy that he's doing. And it's a kind of grotesque and rhetorically violent thing to do, but he's really, really good at it. Steve, what what do you think, Dana and I have been yakking? Uh, I thought the show was very, very, very funny, but I didn't laugh once. And I'm trying to think through why and what's changed because I loved Ali G. Um, besides the obvious, right, which is the advent of the Trump era. But, um, and I think, Julia, I'm going to draw upon something you said in the previous segment, which is I think our notion of villainy maybe has refined itself since the uh, Trump presidency started. On the one hand, I think um, there are public figures who we understand are, you know, the face of something quite evil. And, you know, they are deserving in, I think, our estimation, at least on this panel, of being called out in public to their faces um, and uh, that their, you know, that their life out in the public can be made maximally uncomfortable given the extent of the villainy that they're perpetuating on the public sphere. Um, and on the other hand, there's what you pointed out in the last segment, this sense that a lot of what we're sort of all trapped within large systems in which agency, by, by, by their nature, what's degrading about them is that they take agency away from people and we make small, you know, seemingly self-interested or rational decisions that cumulatively add up to, you know, a, a plastic infested ocean or, um, you know, a just a market system careening towards, you know, species extinction or whatever, or, you know, towards the Trump presidency or whatever it is. And it's somehow between these two notions of villainy, that sweet spot where Ali G was funny, where Sasha Baron Cohen was funny, to me has disappeared. Because, you know, the the opening segments of the show are not only unfunny, they just strike me as gratuitously sadistic, right? So he takes this art gallery owner and subjects her to a kind of cruel joke that she's not in on totally pointlessly. And yes, she's part of the art world. Well, she's part of this large system in which a bunch of self-interested people make small decisions and it adds up to a world in which nobody has any fucking clue what a valuable work of art is anymore. And it's, you know, powered on the fumes of its own bullshit. But this individual person, though though she's caught up in it and repeats the cliches of it, um, is not herself like a villain. We don't regard her as villainous in in, in any way. Um, on the other hand, we have these public figures who are so obviously villainous to the point of being evil that that it's completely redundant. Nothing is being exposed by having them talk about a kindergarten's program. Um, and so the show just feels redundant and stale in part because I think this kind of cringe TV gotcha humor from the left originated in the Bush years, if I remember correctly. I mean, it's been it's been in the culture for 30, 40 years since SNL, but it became a really dominant form of comedy in the Bush years when I think we were turning towards comedy for equilibrium against the idiocy of public life, but with a ultimately complacent sense that idiocy wasn't totally dominant. It was too dominant for how fucking idiotic it was. It had too much way too much power for how shallow, for how vacuous um, elements of the Bush years, including the president himself, were then. Um, And of course, you know, the Iraq war really sent it 
you know, to someplace quite dark. But there was still a mistaken and wholly complacent sense that that the that the cosmos, the equilibrium of the cosmos, lay in the favor of rationality and substance. And the Trump presidency has completely falsified that. And I find it impossible to turn to comedy to try to restore some sense of equilibrium because the 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 what's been revealed is how complacent that was. How com- I mean, the Daily Show is an American institution. I loved it. Um, the Colbert Report. You can't go back there, right? Because now, now it's revealed as a kind of c- complacent and compensatory mechanism for the liberal classes to survive something that they thought was temporary. And now we're battling for the future of this country, the future of this planet, and taking time off to kind of restore your zen by laughing at public idiocy, to me, just seems a complete anachronism. I hear a lot of what you're saying, and it might not be my reaction to this show, but I but I, I think it has a lot of, of validity, that analysis. But you aren't really saying that comedy is not possible in the Trump era, are you? Dana, I may be saying nothing more than I can't find a show like this funny, even though I find it clever. Is that what you mean by saying I find it funny, but I didn't laugh? I think that was your yeah. first statement about it, right? Yeah, I didn't laugh one time. I mean, I just, I can't, I can't be made whole by laughing at what's happening in our public life. And I just don't think I'm alone. Like, I don't think late night satire, I don't think it has the centrality that it used to have. Or am I, Julie, am I totally off here? No, I mean, this is such a big subject. I feel like we should return to it. I don't think we can fully adjudicate it here, and I'm not sure it ever could be fully adjudicated. But certainly I agree with you that this show, I, 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 I mean, I remember the dismay I felt when the news came out about Abu Ghraib and the notion that, that you know, a nation that I thought had some baseline set of standards was practicing torture. Like, the stakes didn't feel particularly low at the moment when Ali G came on the scene and began uh, prankstering our social and political consciousnesses through uh, japes and mischief and prankery. So I'm not sure how much has changed, but there is something about this show at this moment that feels nihilist rather than practical. Like if, if satire is based in a critique of a system that, you know, potentially has merit and is thus worth critiquing, like uh, this, this is not a show that asserts a baseline value in basically anything. Yeah. And I, f- I, I agree completely that this is not necessary comedy. This is something that like, if like me, you get a certain kind of, you know, bleak charge out of his his uh, pranking of current political figures, then maybe watch that part of it. But this is far from, yeah, this is this is far from necessary political comedy watching. No. Anyway. And the last thing I want to say, we've gone on for a long time, but for the first half, the first half of the show is so bad that I felt like, oh, uh, we're the dupes. Like the audience is also one of the dupes here. Like this is a very tightly held marketing campaign on behalf of Showtime that has allowed newsmakers to tease their dupery. And the fact that he got Sarah Palin in some way or at least got her upset is an engine of attention. And then the attention is not warranted by the resulting product. Like I would not say watch it. I would say wait and see which four clips go viral and watch those. All right. I agree with all that. Um, all right. Uh, who is America's on Showtime? Sasha Baron Cohen's new show. Check it out. Come to Facebook and let us know what you thought of it. All right. Moving on. Seattle has banned them. Starbucks is in the process of eliminating them. A movement against straws is gathering uh, almost like the old six pack rings that used to hold Cokes and Budweiser's together. Are straws about to become a thing of the past? Will our children grow up without them? Uh, Julia, as I understand it, this took on some serious momentum after a video of a sea turtle uh, went viral. It had a straw wedged up his nose. Back in 2015, it was viewed more than 30 million times. We're all fixated on the idea of the ocean saturated with plastic bags and straws. is this a meaningful first step or is this pure symbolism? I'm so excited to discuss straws with you guys because I think the Starbucks move to ban straws is simultaneously fantastic and just complete, utter, idiotic bullshit that suggests how misguided and stupid we are in our inability to attend for our dying planet. Like, it seems reasonable to me to conclude that there will be more plastic waste as a result of banning these straws. 
um, and that in seizing upon straws, we are grasping at straws. And yet, if there's a broad, you know, if banning plastic bags begets banning straws, begets eventually banning plastic cups whatsoever, begets like a broader elimination of disposable plastics from our life, that is probably to the good. But this specific straw thing, for some reason, just seems so dumb to me. Well, wait, so why is it going to create more plastic waste to ban straws? Well, the good folks at Reason magazine uh, weighed the straw plus lid grams of plastic in the current Starbucks arrangement and compared it to the grams of the new lids, which are out in certain stores, and the new lids weigh more. There are like more grams of plastic that will be thrown away in the new convex sippy cup lids than the old flat lid plus the straw. So like there, there is more plastic that will be thrown out as a result of this. Now, there's some debate about whether it is the specific shape of the straw that causes it to elude recyclability and funnels it into the noses of uh, sea turtles. But most of the research I've read suggests that the actual concern is about the breaking down of plastics into microplastics, like little floating beads of plastic that are particles essentially in the water rather than like individual floating lawn chairs and plastic flamingos. Like when people talk about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, it's not actually a bunch of beach balls in a gyre in the ocean. It's like more particulate than that. And so if the if the concern is them breaking down, there's more plastic. There's more plastic. It's going to be more plastic. Mm. It's so insane. Well, I mean, uh, Julia, I don't disagree with you at all. And I think, um, you know, there needs to be a, a somewhat sophisticated net net analysis on how much, uh, you know, you know, human detritus we're putting into the natural world um, beyond its capacity to metabolize it. And if this turns out to be net net more plastic, then it's a bad decision. What I wonder, though, isn't isn't it the case that among the reasons we've done so little about global warming and the plastic scourge in the oceans is it's the you know the collective actions of so many people are so destructive um you know individual consumer cho- consumer choices on the part of the conscientious are not going to do nearly enough to stem the damage that we're doing therefore we need top down systemic solutions however those are either perceived as or somewhat easily caricatured as elitist, and therefore a populist resentment can be stoked against them, and we end up doing nothing. To the degree that people have, rightly or wrongly, the notion in their mind that plastic straws are the problem or part of the problem, and are then motivated to say, I don't want, you know, this frivolous little item that I use to suck ice, you know, drinks into my mouth with to, to kill cute turtles uh, out in the ocean at least we're getting a kind of bottom-up, somewhat spontaneous, grassroots response to the fact that we're overburdening and possibly destroying the earth. And we need a substantive solution that we get exactly right, or we're in danger of, you know, consuming out from under ourselves the basis for our own existence, (laughs) without question. At the same time, you, you know, I find it hard to dismiss anything as purely symbolic because symbolism is going to count for a lot in the immense battle that we have in front of us. Right. I think the 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 fact of it being a corporate nudge is the part that strikes me as good. The fact of it being this specific corporate nudge uh, of, of like substituting the reviled straw that was the star of a viral heartbreaking video versus actually figuring out more methodically and less PR-ishly, how to reduce the amount of plastic that is wasted at Starbucks uh, gives me pause. I think the thing that I find heartening here is that these broader municipal and corporate moves of like, no, we don't have plastic bags anymore at our store. Like, you have to figure out you can use a paper bag, you can bring your own bags. Like, I generally think we shouldn't use plastic bags, and yet I'm not good enough at planning my life to bring tote bags around with me in my bags all the time so that I never need to use a plastic bag somewhere. I take it as a service when a store nudges me toward not using plastic bags. And it's like, hello, we've provided you with paper bags. Or do you have a tote bag? Or we don't actually sell any disposable bags. You have to pay an extra five cents for this reusable bag. Um, That all strikes me as a good. I'm happy to be nudged in that way. And our only hope of improving our lot and not forcing Ben Foster further into the woods is these broad corporate moves 
But I guess part of my heat and my omnidirectional heat on this subject is that I'm a year-round iced coffee drinker, although I do not use disposable iced coffee cups. I use a reusable one and a reusable straw. But uh, I... As a result, I really love straws. Like, I feel like we should also talk a little bit about the cultural experience and the cultural import of the straw. We should pour one out or slurp one up for the straw. <laughs> Drip mm-hmm. one drop by drop out for the straw. Um, before, it, before it goes entirely by the wayside. Straws play a big part in my household because my kid drinks out of them all the time. And that is mainly just a cleanup thing. There's fewer drinks spilled if you serve every drink with a straw. But we do. I wouldn't exactly call them. Uh, do you use lids? No, I'll just make her a cup of anything, including a cup of tea sometimes and stick a straw in it. That's so interesting. I feel like straws without lids increase the likelihood of spill because of the like, uh, you know, because you can like tip the cup over by uh touching the straw. But I guess, I guess I'm true. dealing with the motor control of five-year-olds. I mean, not if the tweens, cup has enough teens. integrity to stay on the table, then basically there's just fewer times that it has to be picked up and put back in the wrong place where it's going to spill and wreck right. stuff. Um, but the ones that we usually use are somewhere in between permanent and disposable. We re- rewash them and they're those bubble tea straws, you know, those big ones that you get at Vietnamese places for the bubbles to go through. And they're sturdy enough that you can wash them in the washing machine a few times. But they do eventually, yeah, they do eventually just end up in the landfill. I mean, I guess to me, I, it seems like they should attack bags first, right? I mean, plastic bags seem like they must just in pure volume be a much, much bigger problem than plastic straws. And it also seems like they're extremely replaceable, right? For, as you were saying, by selling five cent tote bags or asking people to carry bags mm-hmm. with them or right. even just reusing plastic bags. Like yeah. literally when I walk my dog, I don't even take out plastic bags to pick up her poop anymore because there's always a plastic bag, a clean plastic bla- bag blowing along the ground yeah, as you walk through the streets along. of New York yeah. City. They're everywhere. I mean, it would be the easiest thing in the world to just stop making them and keep using the ones we have for a few years. Right. It's true that the straw offers a, a different experience uh, a different drinking experience than a sippy cup in a way that a like a reusable canvas tote or paper bag or one of those bagu nylon ripstop totes um, isn't significantly different. But, you know, in addition to the fact that drinking through a straw maybe minimizes spills in your home, according to dentists, is better for your teeth, particularly if you're drinking acidic and sugary iced coffee, um, you know, is better for people with various disabilities. And there are certain people who can only consume liquid through straws um, and and should certainly preserve straw access in, in whatever strawless future we construct for people who are able to drink in other ways. Um, there, it's just a it's just a different way to consume a liquid like it is. A, it is a, the, the notion of Drinking an iced coffee from a sippy cup seems ridiculous to me. <laughs> I recognize that if it saves the planet, fine, we can do it. I mean, I'm going to continue making my coffee at home with my reusable cups, but there's something about it that is actually qualitatively different than but the then, bag but thing. Won't there just be a market in non-disposable straws? I mean, won't there just be a new market that springs up where everybody has their own cool, personalized metal or wood or, or straw straw? One of the great articles we read, by the way, for this is this this piece for The Atlantic by Alexis Madrigal that's this deep dive into the history of straws and how they began in the 1800s as actual pieces of rye stock, like actual straws. <laughs> and for many, many years, they look like that. And even the first produced straws apparently were made to look as if they were natural pieces of straw because that's what people expected. Hmm. Can I can I persist in making my dialectically fragile but actually probably quite banal point, which is that of course, individual decisions are not going to save the planet. Like, we have to know that conceptually. We can all decide we're not going to use a plastic bag at the supermarket, a single use plastic bag at the supermarket, or accept a single use plastic straw at Starbucks. It won't make a, a goddamn lick of difference because it's never going to be universal enough unless it's systemic and enforced. But what we do need is to feel as though we have individual agency in whatever solution is going to happen, or we're going to so perceive the structure. Uh, solution as top-down and elitist that we won't accept it. I mean, individuals of us will, but that's the problem is we live in a world in which collective action is so fucking destructive that individually virtuous choices are meaningless, which is why Ben Foster went into the woods, people. (laughs) Uh, Well, I do. I mean, this is one recurring theme of the Trump era, too, which is that 
in an era where government is unlikely to take up regulation and where, as you note, Steve, when municipal governments, which tend to be more liberal, at least in certain municipalities, than uh, state or federal governments take up regulations like this, they get accused of nanny statism and overreach and um, government expansion and you know all of the rest of the tropes we're familiar with, which leaves this yeah. weird opening for corporations. Like we're in this weird, weird moment where it's corporate America is the most likely uh, institution to take a systemic step. The problem is when you rely on an individual corporation to make this kind of move, you don't end up doing a rational study driven by government scientists who are trying to do an impact analysis and figure out which plastic thing should be banned that would actually create the biggest effect. You're like, what bandwagon can we hop on that will help us with our PR in the year that uh, like we called the cops on some black guys who are trying to buy coffee in our restaurant in Philadelphia? Like it's utterly random and motivated by things other than actual environmental impact, I believe, that Starbucks is doing this. And so, yeah, it's better that it's happening than that it's not. But it's like a symptom of a fucked up system. Oh, yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. if you think about it, just <laughs> I'm going to start. I'll start writhing on the floor of the studio if I really start thinking this through. But if you think about the difference between the impact of anything that we can do as individual consumers and the impact of what the government and corporate America and the world, what essentially like capitalism could do that it is not doing, then everything starts to seem nihilistic and hopeless. I actually, in, in my research for this, came across a kind of bar graph of different things that individuals could do for the environment and how much impact each thing would have with, you know, vertical bars ascending to, to indicate each act. And recycling was one of the lowest ones. <laughs> recycling, the most impactful things that an individual could do were not drive a car, which, you know, by virtue of living in New York, I already get to do, and uh, and having one less child, I guess, than, you know, the average, whatever the average family size is in the U.S. now. So those are, those are the big acts that you can do. But all of these things that we spend so much time and energy on, mm -hmm. and, and in my right. case, I feel like, you know, just feel so morally obligated to do, like, I'm going to go unlock the door and go back home and turn off all the lights so as not to waste energy. And it has no impact. I mean, it really, it needs to be everybody together, including the big guns with money and power for us to have any impact. No, there was another story that came out this week. We were concerned about acid rain in the 70s and 80s. And the tops of red spruce trees in Northeast America were all dying and pitted and red and falling off because of the uh, air pollution impact of industrial factories in the Midwest. And then uh, the government passed the Clean Air Act, and then the air got cleaner, and now the trees are back. Like, that is the environmental story I read this week, that I was like, what the, why the fuck are we excited about straws? Right. It just goes back to the nihil This is the nihilist episode of the St. Culture Capist. It goes back to the Sasha Baron Cohen point, which is like even a piece like that that did not get nearly the same attention uh, as the straw ban isn't going to change the minds of the either the lawmakers who could affect change or the you know there's like an easy anecdotal false but but plausible narrative that um, it's easy to pop into place to counteract that story, even if that story were getting the attention that it should. I'm going mm. full Ben Foster, guys. See you Goodbye. later. <laughs> this is the last edition of the Slate Culture Cap Fest. It's been nice. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, many people have written about this, including Hen Henry Grabar for Slate. His piece, Respect the Straw Ban, the anti-plastic straw campaign is looking like a movement even if it doesn't really matter, is up on Slate now. Whatever, we'd love to hear what you think about it at Facebook.com. Moving on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? So my endorsement this week comes from the Jerusalem Post. It's something I, I came across last night that is just right up my alley. I think you guys know that I love paleo history and digging up things and discovering things about human history from what you dig up. Any kind of field that, that involves digging up human or non-human artifacts and thinking about the past fascinates me. I think we even had a Slate Plus segment where we talked about our alternate dream careers, and I said that mine would be brushing off tiny little bones in a, in a field somewhere. So this is one of those stories. So the piece of news is that in northeastern Jordan, archaeologists have discovered the world's oldest piece of bread. <laughs> it's, it's the remains 
of a piece of bread or some kind of like cracker-like substance that was baked about 14,500 years ago, which is older than any previous bread remains that have been found. And in fact, there How is... How can bread even remain? I mean, I guess it's more that there's a charred, there's some charred bits in this old prehistoric fire site that you know, seem to have grains in them. Who knows? I don't know how they discover that it's bread. But actually, there's a famous there's a famous old piece of bread. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite historic breads is from Pompeii. There's actually a charred loaf of bread that survived Pompeii. You know, in the way that the bodies survived Pompeii, like the ash filling it in, so that it looks like this perfect gray ashen piece of bread. And if you go to a Pompeii exhibit, or I suppose to actual Pompeii, where I've never been, you can see you know a, a model reproduction of this this bread. But of course, that was after bread had been around for a while, right, in the uh, in the Roman Empire. But this bread seems to actually predate agriculture itself. Apparently, this artifact comes from about 4,000 years before agriculture as we know it took place. So it's also this exciting discovery because it's making archaeologists talk about what kind of food consumption was going on before there was agriculture, that probably there was some mix of hunter-gatherer culture and that people would essentially gather grains and that it was this rare thing to gather enough grains to be able to make them into bread. It's a fascinating piece of writing about archaeology. It makes you think about, you know, the history of food and food making in a whole different way. And for me, as a huge fan of bread <laughs> and someone who's always making the argument for it in what I feel is our, our anti-bread era, right, because of the popularity of, of no-gluten diets, there are all kinds of people who don't have celiac intolerance who still somehow demonize bread, and that has always driven me crazy because it's been such a huge part of human culture forever. So to get this proof that bread is even older than we thought and has been part of our lives for even longer than we thought was a, a big vindication for me, the champion of bread. Love so, that. And Dana, can we let's just start a bread adulation podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Do you agree with me that bread yes. has been unduly demonized? Yes, yes. Screw screwing bread. Like, I hate, I hate that aspect of our culture so much. I feel like I turned 35, my metabolism slowed down, and I had to figure out how to, like, deal with that. And I, like, tried to go down the breadless road for a while, and it just ended up with me eating, like, 2,500-calorie salads that were full of, like, eggs and chicken and nuts and avocado and some desperate effort to get one-tenth of the satiety. I never said that mm -hmm. word out loud that I get from eating, like, I'd go with satiety, but... Yeah, I think it's satiety. You, like I could eat like a single oyster cracker and be more full than after eating this like gigantic pile of of grainless goo. And uh, anyway, I've recalibrated. But yes, bread for life, bread for bread to the past, bread to the future, bread forever. Hooray! I mean, I have to say, last night we had um, a guest who wonderfully lingered for cocktails until like eight p.m. and we had to do a a, a very ad lib dinner. And we had some chicken breasts. And we kind of flattened them and grilled them. And then we just made a fucking sandwich. We just went for the sandwich for dinner, like toasted this wonderful loaf bread from the Green Acres uh, Bakery, the people who make the, the heavenly pie. And it was just something about, you know what? Throw it on some toast, add a little mayo and a little mustard and just have a fucking sandwich. I'm still thinking about a different loaf of bread that I found at your house. Like I want to come back to <laughs> your neighborhood to get some bread. I know exactly the bread you're talking about. I'm oh going to endorse God. that bread. Then. <laughs> that bread is ridiculous. It's the best week. bread since the bread 14,500 <laughs> years ago in Jordan. <laughs> Wait, so once again, just to send people there, it's the Jerusalem Post and the, the, the very straightforward headline is world's oldest bread found at prehistoric site in Jordan. <laughs> Um, oh, my God. That gives me like now I have like 10 endorsements. Number one, if you like the Jerusalem Post article about prehistoric bread, may I commend you also to a recent piece in The New York Times called Ancient Romans Hunted, quote, sea monsters, period. Were they whales? Question uh, mark, which uh, is a similar archaeological deep dive into apparent whaling practices off the coast of Spain that suggest perhaps the Mediterranean Sea used to be full of whales and you know, I don't know. Maybe that's the sea monster that got Andromeda. I don't know. In any event, love archaeological discovery. Um, 
I have an endorsement in that vein. I was actually going to wait a couple of weeks until I'd fully finished it to endorse it, but I'm so inspired by Dana's prehistoric purview that I'm going to recommend The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs, A New History of a Lost World by Steve Brousset, which my husband has read and then began to read aloud to my children. And so I have read aloud bits and pieces of chapters hopping all over the book to my children. Um, But from what I have gathered so far and from my husband's report, this book is the book I've been dreaming of for five years of raising dino-obsessed children and reading a ton of kid-oriented slash badly written and designed encyclopedic treatments of dinosaurs and what we currently know about them. This is a highly readable memoir slash uh, explanation of what we currently know about dinosaurs and how we know it uh, by what seems to be a very personable and accomplished paleontologist who is extremely good at describing like what is the actual work of digging up dinosaurs like who are some of the characters who do it what are some of the like land use rules like if you just go to Montana where apparently even in the previous couple decades you can still find just huge intact skeletons of triceratops and tons of other interesting stuff um who owns it who decides whether you get to keep the bones you find like how do you negotiate that all of the kind of practical logistics of dinosaur discovery exploration and conclusion making he seems to touch on in this incredibly readable memoir that is doesn't seem to sacrifice specificity or sophistication but is also very read aloudable to 5 year olds who are pretty intent upon learning about the surprising snout shape of an adolescent T-Rex Anyway, it seems awesome. I look forward to reading it to myself in order, and I can, I will report back if my verdict changes on it. But uh, The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs, A New History of a Lost World by Steve Brissett is excellent. Mm. All right. Well, the bread that you had at my house is comes from a place called Bartlett House in Ghent, New York, of all places. Uh, and I say that's, I mean, seriously, the funny thing about Ghent is we're surrounded by towns that are uh, charming toy towns that are gentrifying in their own you know, especially sort of rustic way. Um, but Ghent isn't that town. Ghent is essentially a post office and a Dairy Queen uh, and an old fake stone facade uh, diner. But uh, just down the road, there's this old house from the 19th century, 1850s. It was probably some kind of a roadside something, tavern or whatever. And it got refurbished by a fancy people up from New York into a lovely cafe, but their bakery is superlative. I mean, as you know, Julia and Dana are my witness. That is some of the best bread you're ever going to find anywhere. And they do a whole variety of baked goods and kinds of breads. It's really worth seeking out. Bartlett House in Ghent, New York. Love it. Uh, That was my spontaneous endorsement this week, my real endorsement. And here's some slate jingoism from Steve. I finally, I had started it and loved it, um, but was putting it off for when I could really, uh, really lose myself in it. And that's um, slow burn the uh, podcast. I know I'm so late to this, but I just want to add my you know, uh, affection for this to the public chorus uh, about it. But um, obviously, it's a retail. Everyone knows it was a huge hit on iTunes, number one on iTunes. But it's Leon Nafax, Slate's own Leon Nafax, uh, retelling of the Watergate saga in a sort of semi-real-time way, I guess with the hook being, you know, how disorienting it was to be in the middle of it, how, you know, even as salacious details entered the public realm, the public didn't really care. They massively, in a huge sort of historic landslide, reelected Nixon even after many of the salient details about Watergate had come out, what it was like for the public mood to change, why it changed, what which Republicans were quislings, which were courageous, uh, what the opposition looked like, and just all of the weird, almost just surreal paraphernalia that surrounded a scandal like this, all of these, you know, the bit players um, who perform some odd function, revelatory function in it, or criminal function in it. Uh, the whole thing, it, what unites it is Leon's ability to tell a story in a companionable uh, and lucid way so that it's possible to both listen to this, but also follow it. Um, uh, even, even in the you know, a density of incredible details. You always feel as though you're being guided very calmly uh, and very lucidly along by um, Leon. So Slow Burn, if you haven't caught up with it yet, is really, really, really worth it. And um, you have it something like three weeks until Slow Burn season two comes out. So it's time to get get caught up on season one. I'm so yeah. glad you finished it and loved it. I uh, obviously have a dog in the fight, but I love 
both how dense the argumentation and analysis is. I think yeah. Leon sort of breaks all the rules of what level of complexity of information you can do in narrative audio and, and has found a very clever way to really pack in sophisticated information and analysis. And then I also think once you get to the conclusion, you realize that although the show is uh, extremely restrained in its parallels to today and in its structure, it makes a totally knockout argument about how fucked we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. It's no, it's it's a it's a masterclass, and it does something new with the medium, um, which those two things are remarkable. So here, here, um, well done, Slate. Well done, Leon Nafak. Um, uh, thank you, Dana. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Or as always, you can drop us a note at our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash culturefest. We do have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Benjamin Frisch. Uh, for this, for Dana Stevens, our and personal Julia savior Turner. and hero is Benjamin Frisch. <laughs> I think he, I think he dislocated his right shoulder making a helicopter gesture this week uh, from the behind the glass. Uh, for Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you soon. 